I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. This is part two, the final episode with Lisa Walden. Her husband, Josh, has already been emotionally and physically abusive with Lisa. His sick mind continues to generate his reign of terror. Her life with him gets much worse, beyond anyone's imagination. I need to repeat a warning for this episode. The content and descriptions will challenge anyone. If you feel this interview is too much for you emotionally, I suggest you shut it off and put your mind on something else. This true story is intended to inform about how warning signs, if not understood or heeded, can lead into worse, unhealthy, and dangerous behavior, which can have devastating effects on those we care about. With that said, we continue the interview with Lisa Walden. He reached a point where I came home from work one day and he said, so I'm tired of all this. He said, I I don't want to hurt you anymore. I don't want us to hurt. He said, I'm just going to kill you and I'm going to kill me. And he said, oh, I've already written up papers so that my brother will get the girls and I've already signed it and he's got a copy of it up there. And he said, and so I'm just going to kill you and then I'll kill me. And he said, and you're not going back to work anymore. So I'm like, what in the heck changed? Like, I've been beaten, but I've never had this happen. About that time, our daughter walked in. And I know in that moment, that's what saved me because he got distracted and he went on about doing what she needed. Well, a few days later, he had kept me up every night. I'd fall asleep and he'd wake me up. He'd run a knife across my neck and he'd say, I just can't wait till that cold steel goes into you. I guess it'd been about three days he hadn't let me sleep. And of course, I'm, I can't even hold my eyes open at this point. So I lay down on our bed and I fall asleep. When I wake up, he's got a table in our bedroom, and it's got a, a hammer, a Dremel, uh, I don't even remember what all tools are on it. He said, I think instead of just killing you, he said, I'm going to torture you. And so I'm looking at this table going, what have I gotten myself into? Again, the same thing happened. My daughter came in. He got distracted. When she left, he came back with that gun, and he had a pillow in his hand. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm going to kill you. And he put that pillow beside my head. And he had that gun on the other side of that pillow. I could feel it. My daughter came back in and needed something else. He put that gun down. He ended up going down to his brother's, I think it was. And I was able to rest. But I thought that was the day that I was going to be with the good Lord. The last three months that we were together before I left... He put my oldest daughter with him. She stayed with him constantly. And my two youngest daughters and I, he kept us locked in their bedroom. He locked it from the outside. So I had to knock on the door and get his attention to ask to go to the bathroom or to ask for food for the girls or drink for the girls because he still had that mentality that those were not his kids. 
he would bring, like, when I would knock on the door and I'd say, I need food for the girls, he would bring in a package of cold hot dogs and a few pieces of bread. And the girls didn't want it. That's not what they wanted to eat. And every day when I'd get the girls to sleep at night, he would come in yet again with that knife and rub it across my throat. And then he'd say, come on, come back here. So I'd get up, I'd go to his little room, and eventually they named that the torture chamber. So I would go to the torture chamber, and he would be higher than a cat on methamphetamine. And, I mean, he would have circuit boards, and he would be cutting parts of it off, like burning them off. And he would make me sit there and do that. Sometimes he would just beat me up while I'm in there. He sat me down one day, and he hit me in the top of my knee with a claw hammer. And it went into my knee. I got bit by a brown recluse one night, and... You got bit by what? A brown recluse spider. When he would get mad at me, that's where he would hit me, is where that spider bit me. So the poison from that spider just kept spreading. Eventually, he would either keep me back there in that room with him so that he could do with me as he pleased, or he would leave me in there with the girls, but he would come in there and assault me in there. He went to take my oldest daughter to school one day, though. He went out to get in the truck, and the truck wouldn't start. He came back in, and he said, I need you to get her ready for school. He said, clean yourself up. And so I get up, and I'm trying to, like, cover bruises as best as I can so that she can't see them. And I'm not moving fast enough because I have been beaten so much I couldn't stand. My feet were swollen. My back was sore. My head, I could smell the rot in it. Oh, my God. It, it was terrible. And I couldn't breathe because I, that's all I could smell. He came back in. I wasn't moving fast enough. So he grabbed some electrical cord that was in the floor and proceeded to whip me with it. Oh. And uh, he said, I'll do it myself and walked out. Well, he went back out and tried the truck again. And the truck still wouldn't start. So he came, got the jumper cables and came in. And because the truck wouldn't start, that was my fault. So he took the jumper cables and he hit me in the head with them and walked out. And I guess he got the truck started eventually because they, I heard the truck start and I heard him leave. He had my oldest daughter with him. He was taking her to school. But before he left, he came back in there and he said, I just want you to know when I get home, I'm going to kill you. And it was the first time that he'd said it, and there was nothing there. Like, his eyes were black. That was the first time he said it, and I knew he meant it. Terrible. Terrible. So he left, and I'm just sitting there panicking, because I know what's coming. I know as soon as he gets home, I'm dead, and, and I'm my girls are dead. I mean, he's done said, if, you know, he's going to kill them. So I'm sitting there thinking, and... Something comes in my head and says, check the door. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I know now that was God. God was telling me, because I had been asking God, I need a way out. God, I need a way out, please. God probably showed me ways out, but I wasn't listening. But that day I heard, check the door. And so I went over and I grabbed the door and Josh forgot to lock it from the outside. Huh. And so I opened the door, and I'm crawling. I cannot hardly walk. So I wake the girls up, and I just grab two diapers. I'm wearing scrubs. I put two diapers in my pocket. I put shoes on the girls, and I said, we got to go. Come on, we got to go. 
Now, what time of year is this? This was in March. So it's Texas, but it's cold, right? Uh, it's probably moderately cool to kind of lukewarm. Okay, so it's not so bad. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I get their shoes on them, and I try to put my shoes on, but I can't. They just, they won't go on my feet. So I'm barefoot. I've got the girls, and I'm walking out the front door, and immediately I'm thinking, if his brother's at home, we're busted. If he's, if his brother's watching right now, we're busted. But brother didn't see me. Somewhere along the way, Josh had put up cameras in the house. Put the camera up. I found out in our bedroom, he put night vision cameras on the house. And so when I left, when the girls and I walked across our yard, climbed the fence, and started walking down the street. And I knew it's about a 20-minute round trip to take her to school and come back. So I know I'm on borrowed time already. And so I get the girls off to the side of the street, and we're walking down the street, and I hear the truck come. He had pipes on it, so I knew what it sounded like. And I see it come into sight, and I'm thinking, I'm fixing to die. He's going to kill us right here on the side of the street. And there's nowhere to go. I'm in a ditch. So I just grabbed the girls, and I ducked down. By the grace of God, he drove right past us. Never saw us in that ditch. And then at that point, I walk into the woods. I hear him start the truck again and come back around the driveway. And I hear him drive up and down that kind of road that we lived on he's looking for me he knows i'm not there kind of find out they said he watched the footage on his cameras and he thought i got in a vehicle that passed by and left so he only looked a little bit for us before he went and watched his videos which i was grateful for but at this point we're about i don't know half a mile out in these woods and it's the only place that i feel safe at the moment but i can see my house so if he was to leave or Come looking again, I know he's coming. And so for two nights, that's where me and the girls stayed. We slept in the woods, and it rained, and it thunderstormed, and it was a nightmare. How did the girls handle this? They were confused, upset. You know, they're still, they want their dad. They don't know what's going on or why mom and dad aren't together or why we're not at the house. So I just sang to them. They loved that song, The Itsy Bitsy Spider. We sat there and I sang The Itsy Bitsy Spider for what seemed like hours and just talked to them and tried to keep them calm. And eventually they fell asleep. Uh, how old are they at this time? Two and three. Oh, my God. Yeah, they're just just little ones. Yes. And eventually they fell asleep. And at some point I fell asleep. I know it took me a while because I was scared to death i wasn't worried about anything in those woods i was worried about what might come out of that house and into those woods after that second day i knew i had to get help the girls hadn't eaten in two days they hadn't drank in two days i'm on the verge of collapse and so i made my way back up to the road i can only go so much at a time because it takes everything i have to go and so we make it up to this driveway up the street, and I just sit down in the driveway with the girls because I, I can't go any further. About 10 minutes later, this truck pulls up. It's a young kid, and he's not paying any attention to me and the girls that are, you know, 15 feet away. I can't holler. I'm so 
exhausted. I can't even muster up a holler for help. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like flagging, trying to get attention. Mm-hmm. He never noticed us, and he ended up going about on his way. I know it was about 3.30 that day because my daughter's school bus had just come by, and I knew about what time it came to bring her home. She passed by, and I thought, well, if he's going to go anywhere, he's going to go when she gets home. So I told the girls, I said, babies, we got to get up. We got to try to go some more. And I knew there was a church up the road, and that was my goal. If I can get to this church, I can get some help. We went about probably another 200 feet, and another vehicle came over the hill. And I'm just waving my hands as big as I can. I mean, I'm covered in blood. I've got two kids in nightgowns, disheveled looking. This truck stopped, and I said, hey, I said, I need a ride. You know, my, my husband's trying to kill me, and, you know, and he had this little bitty Toyota truck. I mean, couldn't have put all of us in it if he wanted to. Had the bed full of stuff. And he said, well, let me take my son up the road. He said, and I'll come right back for you. And I was like, okay, I mean, hey, that's better than nothing. He took off, and right behind him, an SUV came over the hill, and she stopped. And she said, honey, what is going on? And I said, my husband tried to kill me, and she's just looking at me, and she's going, get in my car. Get in my car. Got in the car, and she said, where are you trying to go? And I said, I was just trying to go to the church up the street here so I can try to get help. And so she went to the church, but nobody was there. And so she said, I'm taking you to the police department. She said, we're just going to go. And it turned out she was my oldest daughter's PE teacher at school. She got me over to the police department, and when we got there, There was nobody, when she went in, there was nobody in there. In the police department, there's nobody there? It turned out the officer was in the bathroom at the time. So anyways, we pull up, she goes in, she comes out, she's like, there's nobody here. She's like, she didn't have a cell phone. She said, my friend lives right over here. She said, I'm going to go borrow her phone and I'll call over here. And I'm like, okay. So we drove around to her friends. She goes in and calls over there and they were like, oh yeah, we're here. You know, we were just not in the office at the moment. And so we're like, okay, well, her friend comes out and has this gallon-sized Ziploc bag that's got crackers and cookies and all kinds of snacks in it and then brings out two bottles of Gatorade. I mean, we're all starving. It's been three days almost since we've eaten. I'm not thinking about me. All I'm thinking about is the kids. So I hand them Gatorades, and I start just giving them whatever's in this bag. And, I mean, you would have thought you just put a steak and a baked potato in front of them. They were just ecstatic to have food and drink. Got over to the police station, and the officer came out, and he took one look at me, and he said, what happened? I said, well, my husband's tried to kill me. He said, what do you mean? I said, my husband tried to kill me. He said, well, you know, what all do you have going on? So I'm, like, showing him my head, and one of my fingers is almost not attached anymore, and I've still got the scar from my being stabbed, and my knee wound is wide open, and I've got spots on my legs, and my legs are purple and swollen up so big. They thought they were broken. I mean, they were huge. And he's like, ma'am, do you want to press charges? And part of me is going, no, because I'm scared to death of him. He's going to hurt my family. And so I hesitated because my first thought was protect my family. And I looked at my girls and I said, yes, sir, I want to press charges. I I knew I had to. I had to because of my kids. So he did the paperwork and they called the ambulance and loaded me up. 
took me to Tyler and they asked me, do you have anybody that can come get your kids? And I told him, I said, well, I don't have contact with my family, so I wouldn't know who to call or how to, how to get in touch with them. The lady that rescued me, she said, now, if you want me to take your kids to my house until somebody can come get them, she said, I don't mind doing that. You know, and she just, she was a godsend. She was an angel. They put them in the ambulance so that they could get checked out too and make sure they were okay and healthy. And so we get to the hospital and they automatically take the girls off to the nursery and take me into trauma. As I'm in trauma, I hear these doctors saying, laceration here, cut here, bruise here, this going on here. And I'm just listening to this thinking, are y'all talking about me? I have that much wrong with me because I'm so still full of adrenaline that I don't feel all of it. They were done with their assessment and I said, what about my head? They said, what do you mean? I said, my head hurts. And they looked and they were like, oh my God. So they had to shave all of my hair and I had long, pretty hair and they had to shave it off so that they could get down to my scalp. And they said, it looked like somebody had scalped me, basically. They said from the multiple hits with that baseball bat, he took off layer by layer by layer until it was down to my brain showing. Oh, my God. You mean just no skull in some places? Yes. It's just off the charts. It's just horrible, horrible, horrible. It was. It blew my mind because I didn't realize I was in such severe shape as I was. And, of course, all I'm asking them is, where's my kids? Are my kids okay? Are my kids okay? And they're just looking at me like, how are you talking to us right now? They said I had three pints of blood left in my body. They said I should have been unconscious. That's what they said. They said, "There's we don't understand how you're even talking to us, telling us what has happened. It just didn't make sense. And then the investigators come, and of course I have to retell everything, and they're looking at me like, this woman's lost her mind. She's like, she's crazy. And so I'm like, when y'all go to the house, if you'll find the baseball bat, there'll be blood on it. If you go in the laundry room, there's blood on the washer and the dryer. If you go in the back bathroom, there's probably blood there and Lord only knows what else. At one point, he shot me in the legs with a pellet gun and the pellets were still in my legs. Oh, still in there. Oh. They had to fish them out. But they went to the house and of course, you know, they left thinking that I was a crazy woman. I know they were thinking that because I see it in their eyes. And the next day they came back and they were like, we are so sorry. Oh my God, we're so sorry. We did. We just didn't realize. I mean, you know, and I'm like, it's really not something you can just make up. You know, when you've lived through that, it's not something you just come up with this random story. But yeah, they found blood on the bat, brain matter on the bat. They said they found brain matter in the bathroom floor. I mean... All of the evidence was there. They found what they labeled the torture chamber. They found all the weapons he used. In the meantime, they've grabbed him, of course. Well, they went and did their investigation, and then they went to arrest him, and he wasn't in our house. He had left. So they called me and said, do you know where he would go? And I said, well, the place I know of is his brother's house, which is right there on the property. And so they did a stakeout, and they parked out there and waited for him to come into sight. And they were out there, this is about 5.30 in the morning one morning, and he came out of his brother's front door carrying the trash out for him. And they rolled up in there and got him then. 
my daughter, by the grace of God, was with him, and she was, okay, my oldest daughter. They got her, and they got him arrested. And they said he just had this air about him, like, I'm untouchable, nothing's going to happen to me. Just smug, and they said it just made him sick, the way he acted. And uh, got him to jail, and his lawyer filed a writ of habeas corpus and said his bond was unfair and too high. So they lowered his bond from three quarters of a million to a hundred thousand. Wow. That's a drop. He had his brother sell the truck that we had and bond him out. Well, they put a device on him, a tracker. I don't know what they're called. They didn't set it correctly. He was only supposed to be allowed like 20 miles, I think it was, or 20 minutes from where our house was. But they didn't set it right. So he's in Tyler driving around the hospital where I'm at. Just driving around the hospital. He's circling, hoping to see you. He knew if he got his hands on me and I was gone, most likely his case was gone. And so the hospital had me in a locked room with a different name on my door. It was a, a man's name, not my name. So if anybody came looking for me, they wouldn't have known that I was the one in that room. When he was out driving around the hospital, they moved me into a totally secured room. You had to have a code word to call and ask about me. You had to have a code to come through the door. I mean, his picture was posted up at every entrance and exit of that hospital. Security, if you came to see me, you had to prove who you were. I had to tell them that, yes, I knew you. I mean, the security was unbelievable there. So had he come through those doors, I don't think he would have made it very far. But I guess a police officer had seen him kind of going back and forth and thought it was suspicious, so he pulled him over. When they asked him what he was doing, he said, oh, I'm up here look I'm looking for a job. The officer, you know, was suspicious, so he put in his information and looked him up, and he saw what he had just gotten out of jail for. And so he contacted the police department in Van Zandt County, and they were like, yeah, he's not supposed to be up there. So they rearrested him, and then they raised his bond back up to 750000 If somebody has that on them, $750,000, how much does someone have to come up with to meet that, to break them loose again? 75000 Okay, 10%. Okay. Yep. And I knew he didn't have that money, but I didn't find out that he had even gotten out of jail until he was rearrested because they didn't want me to just panic. They were afraid it would hinder me healing. How long were you in the hospital? I was in the hospital for 21 days. And I was, I had dropped down to 86 pounds. I was 28 years old and I wore a little girl's size 16. In the time that you knew him, what was the most that you weighed versus this low weight? 140. Oh, really? Yes. That is remarkable. My mom said I looked so sickly. She said when she came, when the investigators came back and they asked me, who can we contact for you? I mean, who, who do you want us to get in touch with? And I said, I don't know how to contact any of my family. I know where they lived the last time I talked to them, but I don't know if they still live there. And so they asked my mom's name and I told them, you know, Sue Boyd. They said, well, we'll see, you know, what we can find out. They ended up going back and pulled her up. She still lived in Grand Saline. 
So they went and knocked on her door, and they said, Miss Boyd, um, your daughter Lisa, she's in the hospital. She's asking for you. She said instantly, she said, what did Josh do? What did he do? And they said, he's hurt her pretty bad, but she's asking for you. And so my mom said she just grabbed whatever she could, and she hopped in the car. Because I'm at the hospital, and I'm thinking, I don't have anybody. I'm going through this right here alone. My family doesn't want anything to do with me because I haven't been in touch with them all this time. I have nobody. I have nothing. I'm laying there in the bed, and I hear commotion outside my room. The next thing you know, the door opens, and in walks my mom. I have no words other than there was an angel that came through that door. And she just broke down and cried because she could. they told her, when you go in there, you need to be prepared. She does not look good. So she came in, and I mean, the waterworks, I just cried. I majority of the time, I can't even say it without crying. But I, I needed mm-hmm. my mom in that moment. I needed somebody to take care of me. After she got there and... We kind of figured out what the next steps were because, I mean, they had to get the fluid out of my legs. My legs were red and purple and swollen to the maximum. They couldn't have swollen anymore. So they ended up having to go in and put drains in my legs to drain all of that fluid out so they could see if my legs were broken because they thought they were. Luckily, they weren't. The wound on my head, they had to debride it because I had staph infection, the MRSA because of the spider bite, that poison had spread to my wound. So I had MRSA in my right shoulder, I had it in my head, and I had it in my leg wounds. How would you describe MRSA? It's uh, the worst case of staph infection you can have. And it had spread all over my body. And then while I was there, right before my mom arrived, CPS came in and they asked me to sign some paper. And I signed it. I didn't think nothing about it but it was giving them permission to take my girls and put them in a in a home and I don't think it's fair the way they did that while I was not really coherent I was on medication sure of course but once I signed it it was done I wanted my mom to get the kids they wouldn't allow her to take them I wanted my sisters to take them but they all had kids and I'm, you know, I'm asking them to take on three more mouths to feed. And so they ended up going into foster care. And while I was at the hospital, the lady got in touch with me and she said, I, I want the girls to talk to you. She said, they're asking about you, asking how you're doing. Can we give you a call? And so the next morning, the girls were going to call me. And I'm in a panic because I don't know what to say to them. I mean, how do you tell them, yes, I'm in the hospital because your dad tried to kill me? You don't want to just dump that bomb on them. And my nurse, she was so sweet. She came in and she sat with me and she went over, so what do you want to say to your girls? And, well, don't say it this way. You know, maybe say it. And she rehearsed with me for hours on how to say things to my girls and what not to say. And so when I got to talk to them, it just went smooth as could be. But my nurse was the best nurse ever at that hospital. I had my first surgery, and she asked me, what do you want to eat when you come out? I said, I want a payday candy bar. (laughs) That's one of my favorites. I love it. So I came back from surgery, and on my bedside table is a payday candy bar. Beautiful. She went and got it for me, and it just, 
that small thing meant so much to me in that moment. Represented freedom, too. It did. It did. And then they had the lady from the crisis center that came and she talked with me. And they wanted me to come to the, the women's center when I got released. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was just glad to have my family back and kind of like, I just want to be with them. I don't want to go anywhere else. When I got out, I got out on April the 13th of 2012. That is my favorite Bible verse in the Bible is Philippians 4.13. That's beautiful. The day that I was released, my nurse said that to me. And I thought, that's my verse because... I got out on April 13th, 4.13, and that verse was 4.13. That verse was meant for me. And to this day, that is my favorite Bible verse because I can do all things through Christ. But I did go to the Women's Center. I was there about two days. I felt like, because there were so many rules and guidelines, and you go from your room, and then you got to help do the chores, and then you can't go out of the walls at this time. And I just, I felt trapped. And I called my mom and I said, I can't, I can't do this. I, I've got to get out of here. She called my sisters and my sisters were like, mom, you need to leave her in there. She's where she needs to be. Well, mom could not stand to hear me cry. And so mom called me back and said, baby, I'm on my way. <laughs> and so she came and rescued me again. <laughs> and Making up for lost time too. Yes, very much so. And then on the way home, she had called my, one of my sisters, and they all met us at Dairy Queen, and we had ice cream, and just, I got to reconnect, because my nieces and nephews, when I married Josh, they were little. Some of them weren't even born yet, and then here's these kids that are teenagers and almost adults, and I'm like, where did all the time go? Sure. And so I stayed with my mom for probably about six months. And she said it was, the nights were rough. She said you would, she said during the night you would wake up and she said, I would just be like flailing or flinching. Yes. And, you know, she said you had the worst night terrors. Of course you did. She would wake me up and say, honey, honey, you're okay. Mm. I got in touch with some old acquaintances and a, one of my teachers from high school got in touch with me and said, you know, we heard about what you got going on, and we want to do something special for you. Can you come to our church this week? And I'm like, yeah. And so I went to church, and when church is over, they like, we have something for you. They walked me out to the parking lot, and they had bought me a car. That's so wonderful. It was a Lincoln Town car. Oh. It was a big old car, but I loved that car, and I was so grateful. Because CPS had told me I had to get my own place my own job, mode of transportation, a whole list of stuff for the girls to come back. So I was working on that list. And so that was a huge load off my shoulders. And then I found a duplex. I got in the duplex. It was a two bedroom. So the girls would have their own bedroom. And then CPS would come out and do their visits. And they said, well, each girl has to have their own bed. So then I got bunk beds and put in there. So each girl had their own bed and I did every every step, parenting classes. They made me do drug evaluations. And they, they told me there's no way you went through what you went through and you're not taking something to help you with that. But I passed every drug screening and every drug test. Remarkable person. 
everything was on track for the girls to come back to me. That was what our goal was, was family reunification. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I got sick with laryngitis and I couldn't work for about a week and I couldn't pay my electric bill. And I asked my church to help and they did, but CPS found out about that. I don't know how, but when I went to court, they said, well, she can't pay her bills. So we're going to adoption now. Oh. No longer family reunification. So I was like, I mean, what do I do? I don't want to give up my kids. At the same time, I'm not, I'm still not mentally where I need to be. And physically, I'm still recovering some. And emotionally, I am a mess. Sure. And so I, you know, I talked to my mom and I talked to my family. And of course, some of them were like, you know, you really got to fight for them. And in the end, I said, you know, I'm just going to pray about it. I'm just going to ask God, what do I do? For me to do that was me coming a long way because when I got away from Josh, I was angry with God. I blamed God. God put me in that position. God let me suffer through it. That is the way I looked at it. Why would God just sit back and watch it happen? Yeah, I can see where you got there. My mom convinced me to start going to church with her, and I did, and I was very still, you know, I don't want to hear anything about God and I eventually was able to work through that, and I asked the preacher, I said, can you baptize me? I think that's what I need. He couldn't do it until my head wounds had healed, and so it was like three months before we were able to actually do a baptism, but he did kind of a, before that, like a little sprinkle water on me baptism, and then Mm -hmm. once I healed up, he did a physical baptism. Of course, the heater wasn't working, so the water was nice and cold. (laughs) and uh so that was when i had kind of my turning point and i realized that it wasn't god it was the devil that was doing this to me i think so god was the reason that i came out of it it made me the woman that i am today i am stronger than i ever thought i could have been i have a powerful testimony to share and help other women i look back on it and just That's something that I survived. I mean, that made me who I am. When you give advice, when you talk with women through this podcast, you're doing that right now. What message would you want them to hear from you? No matter how you feel about yourself or what a man says to you, you're worth more than you give yourself credit for. Don't think that because maybe you're like I was, maybe you're isolated from family. Maybe you're isolated as far as where you live and you don't have neighbors you think you can go to for help or co-workers maybe you maybe you work like I did and you're afraid to tell anybody because you don't know what your significant other will do Mm -hmm. 90% of these men are cowards so no matter what they say the only person that they're going to hurt more than likely is you nobody else and there are always resources out there there is always people willing to help you just have to reach out and find them and no matter how bad it is i promise you can overcome it that's fabulous you know i think one of the other things too that i'd like you to comment on is about taking some of the earliest warning signs as they came along and acting upon them rather than letting it slide definitely i think 
schools, I think high schools, especially juniors and seniors, should be given a list of red flags of abuse. I mean, there's financial abuse, there's emotional abuse, there's physical abuse. There are so many kinds of abuse. But that red flag list is something that I didn't see until I went to the abuse counseling. And they handed me that list. And I'm looking at it going, first couple of days we were together, check. Oh, check. Check. If I had known all of this stuff prior to entering that relationship, I would have known this is not safe. This is not healthy. This is not what a relationship is like. I think it's vital that people know about these red flags. I think it can save more lives if the knowledge is there early on. That's really well put. This happens to so many people and they just, they see things, they're uncomfortable, they think it's odd, but they don't get the bigger picture, you know, and I, and I don't blame them because I don't think if I were in my teens and these things happened and I was headstrong about thinking I like somebody, I, I don't think I would jump to conclusions either that this, this is going to be a rough road we're about to go down. And that's why stories like yours and warning signs, those type of things are so helpful because it's saying, look, this may not look that bad right now, but let me kind of give you a glimpse as to what can follow this because you're not going to like what comes after this. And it probably will come after this. Yes, definitely. And I mean, you know, unfortunately, I, in the end, I didn't end up with my girls back with me. And that was heartbreaking for me. I prayed about it and we went to court and the judge basically said that I really didn't have a choice that if I didn't sign my rights away, she was going to take them. The lady that adopted my girls told the judge, well, it doesn't matter what you do. She will be a part of their lives. That is their mother. And that's the moment when it was clear to me that letting her adopt my girls was the right decision. Mm-hmm. And now don't get me wrong. It killed me to sign those papers. It to this day, it still hurts me. But I could not give those girls the life that I felt like they deserved. Mm-hmm. I felt like they should have a childhood like I had, where you were in activities and, you know, I was the band geek and church choir and they needed to have all of that. And I knew as a single mom, just getting back into the working world, I couldn't provide all of that. I didn't want to keep them from having that. So I signed the papers and I made the biggest sacrifice I could have ever made in my life. Does it hurt me to this day? Yes. Do I regret my decision? None whatsoever. They have had an incredible life. They still do. They are in all kinds of activities. I get to talk to them. I get to see them. She has stayed true to her word as far as me being very much in their lives. And I'm beyond grateful for that. You did what was best for them, not necessarily what was best for you, which is what you've done all along, really. They were what mattered more than anything else. So two more things I want to ask you about. I did speak with Detective Christine Holt. And you are a great hero to her. She told me a large part of your story, but of course not in this level of detail. So you and she have kind of remained friends over the years, the detective who worked this case, right? We talk not as often as I'd like to, you know, but life gets busy. 
but we keep in touch, and she will forever be a big part of my life. Her and the other detective that was on my case, uh, I still speak to both of them, and that will forever be a thing. I mean, I keep them updated on how the girls are doing and how I'm doing, and because they are part of the reason that, you know, they did the investigating to put him where he is. So they are, I am beyond grateful for them. And then the other obvious question, Josh, what became of him? We were going to go to trial and I had talked to the DA and I said, I really, I don't want to go through a trial. I don't want to have to hash this out and relive it and relive it and relive it. They came at me, his lawyer said, well, we'll do 30 years. I said, I won't do 30 years. I talked to the DA and I said, I won't sign for anything less than my oldest, my youngest daughter being 18. And 30 years, she would have just barely been 17. And so he came back and he said, well, what if we do 40? I said, 40 is fine with me. So they went to Josh and said, we're going to give you 40 years. And he said, I'm not taking 40 years. Part of the story that I didn't touch on was Josh tried to sexually assault me through the back end with a baseball bat. God. There was evidence of him trying to assault me. And they told him, you can take 40 years or we'll get you for aggravated sexual assault and you'll go to jail as a sex offender. I'm sure he knows what happens to sex offenders in prison. And he jumped on 40 years with a quickness. Now that's the possibility of parole at half of that. Is that right? He'll come up for parole in 2032. We're looking at nine years. And I will be there. I have photos. I have documentation from the police. I will be there. You have to do everything you can. We've seen what he's capable of. Who knows what he would be up to? I don't even want to think about it. Everybody listening to this could figure that out, where he might go next. So Definitely. He's one of these guys, he's done so much wrong, and yet he, in his head, hasn't done anything wrong yet, I'm sure. The crazy thing is, after all of my story came out, there was a woman in Colorado that made a petition to have him rearrested. When they let him out for those few days, she made a petition to raise his bond back up. People from all over the world were signing this petition, but several of them signed and said, oh, I'm his ex-girlfriend from high school, and he used to beat me up, and there were so many women that came out of the woodwork against him. How about that? And then there were several that contacted me and said, you know, we tried to contact you via Facebook while y'all were together to tell you, you know, you need to get away from him. I didn't know that Josh had made a Facebook account with my name, and he would post on it, oh, going to bed with my honey, we had such a great day. He was posting as if he was me. This guy knows how to do all this stuff. So these girls sending these messages trying to tell me to get away are sending them to him. And so he's telling them they just need to leave me alone and blocking them, and so I'm not getting any of these messages. That's how twisted he was. He thought of everything. He absolutely did. Yeah, he's quite practiced. Oh, very much so. So is there anything that we missed that you want to say here as we draw to a close? I do want to say when he went to court to be sentenced, although we knew the plea, they let me write a victim statement. I was nervous to write it because I had never been able to say how I felt to him. And so I want to say so much, but at the same time, I'm terrified because I'm scared to death of this man. Even though he's in handcuffs and he can't get to me, I'm scared to death of him. So I wrote this three-page statement. 
as much as I wanted to say a lot of not-so-nice words to him, I was very cordial, but they said I cut like a knife. And I don't remember what all of it said, but the judge told me, she said, if you're reading that and he is not looking at you, she said, call him out. She said, stop reading and tell him, hey, I'm talking to you. She said, I won't say a word to you. So I'm reading this statement, and he's just rolling his eyes and rolling his eyes. And he got sentenced on my daughter's, my oldest daughter's seventh birthday. So I'm reading the statement, and towards the end of it, I just told him, I said, you know, you're a fish in a tank full of hungry sharks. I'm no longer a prisoner, but you are. And then I said, and when I leave here today, I'm going to celebrate my daughter's birthday. He just rolled his eyes and rolled his eyes and... You know, I, I could tell I was getting to him, but he still had to put on that tough guy act. At that moment, when I finished reading that statement to him, that was when I knew I had my freedom back. That was when I knew he didn't have that power anymore. That was your moment. That was my turning point. And I think any woman that's been abused should have that opportunity to just say how you feel and close that door. At that point, it's all about what you're doing now and what you're going to be doing in the future. And it's not about him and the horrible nightmare he puts you through daily. Yes. 24-7 yes. daily. Unfortunately for him, I got my family back. I got my whole family back. It was like no love lost, no other than the, the younger nieces and nephews being older. It was like we picked up where we left off. Mm. Like no time had gone in between. And I still have that bond with my whole family. Life couldn't be any better. I am happily married. I unfortunately had a car accident in 2016. And it caught on fire. A man came out and pulled me out of the fire. He never thought he'd see me again. I never thought I'd meet him. But my aunt got his information. And when I recovered from my burns and my wounds and everything, I had a trach. I had a trach for three years. I couldn't talk. You couldn't talk for three years? I could not talk from 2016 to 2019. I could not talk. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was terrible. But I met him, I guess it was probably about six months after the wreck. And I just wanted to say thank you. I mean, this man called in a burning car and pulled me out. I went over and thanked him. And I was in a relationship at the time. I took him, you know, I think I took him to Lifesavers. You know, I told him, you're my Lifesaver. Oh, that's very nice. About three weeks later, the boyfriend and I split up, and I moved back to Mineola with my aunt. I got in touch with him, and he said, hey, do you want to go to church with me? I'm like, yeah, you know, over the last few years, I'd kind of gotten off track with God, so it was time to get back on track. And so we started going to church together, and then we'd go to lunch together, and then he would take me home. That was what our dates consisted of. We didn't know there were dates at the time, but that's what they ended up being. Started going to church with him, and I got back on track with God, and then we started talking about dating, but both of us are like, eh, he's 25 years older than I am, so he's hesitant, and I'm, oh, you know, what's the church going to think, and what's our family's going to think, and when God sends you that person, you don't argue with it, you know, you know, and so I called the preacher up one day, and I'm like, hey, can you come by the house, you know, I need to talk to you, so he came by, and I said, Okay, so Bill and I, you know, we've been talking about dating, but how would the church feel about that? You know, there's an age difference. And he said, everybody in the church already thinks y'all are together. <laughs> and so it was like, right then we knew, well, okay, <laughs> it's okay. So 
we started dating, and then about four months after that, he was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer. Oh. And he, hmm. you know, we had been working on the wedding and getting everything planned out, and he said, you know, I understand if you if you don't want to be with me right now. He said, you didn't sign up for this. And, of course, I looked at him and said, well, you're not getting out of marrying me that easy. Oh, gee. So we ended up moving the wedding up sooner because he had to start his chemo and radiation and everything. But we have been married July 21st of this year. will be five years. Nice. Very nice. It's the best decision I ever made. That and, and getting back right with God. In all fairness, everything that I have survived and been through, the reason I have been able to overcome is God. God has carried me through so much and still carries me through. I totally am there with you. How's Bill doing with his health now? They won't say that his cancer is in remission. They just say it's controlled. Okay. Originally, they told him, you're looking at two years. Oh. And that was in 2018. So we're on the yeah. five-year mark now. Yes, that's right. Wow, that's great. So the power of God, yet again, has kept him alive. Now he is a licensed and ordained preacher. Oh, how about that? I'm so proud. Your story is really the most amazing story I think I've ever heard. And I just have so much respect for you. I know I've said that to some other people who are survivors I've spoken with. Again, I talk with Detective Christine, and she took me through bits and pieces of this, not everything. And I was just amazed and just had to speak with you. And doing that, I just find this person who is so wonderful, so strong, who no matter what came her way, stayed on the same correct path. And, you know, anything good that has come your way and will come your way is so amazingly deserved because you just, you're, you're just a loving, lovely person. And I'm just so happy that we had an opportunity to speak today and that you could share everything. And it's a lot to process. I mean, I, I, my head is swimming with all the detail and all the things that took place and how you managed to stay positive. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to yet again share my story in hopes that someone in that situation, hopefully not that severe, will hear it and think, I can do this. I mean, look what she overcame and she did it. And I just hope that women see that and think, you know what, I'm better than this. I'm I'm. I'm going to make the life that I, I deserve and get out of a bad situation. Yeah. And what you're trying to do, what I'm trying to do is very similar because that's it. You know, I, I want people to know that when you get those early warning signs that you have to pay attention to them and you can't imagine things getting worse, but they do. They yeah. escalate in frequency. They escalate in severity. Yours being really the most extreme. So, but yeah, I just want people to just wake up you know, wake up, buy the story. It, you know, it. you have to believe it. You have to totally believe it, take it all in, and then watch out for yourself and watch out for those you care about, especially if you hear them talking about similar type of things happening. Along the way, I've had people with the attitude of, well, you stayed. <laughs> you got what you deserve. Yes. People go there. Victim blaming is a big deal. What people don't understand is that person that controls you they know exactly what to use against you they have manipulated you to believe that you can't make it without them that you don't have anybody in this world to help you and the fear and control they have over you nobody can understand unless you've been there 
don't be so quick to judge on stuff like that. When somebody says that they're in a situation like that, take it to heart. It just, it, it hurts me when people have that attitude of, well, you know, you stayed, you let them do it. Well, no, <laughs> that's not the case. Yeah, they, they re-victimize the victim. Yes, exactly. You know, they look at it like, well, if you didn't have the common sense to walk out of there, maybe you deserved it. Yes, exactly. And yeah. and and a hundred percent of cases, that's not the issue. They're just terrified. They're terrified yes. of what their other significant other or boyfriend is going to do to their children, their family, their friends, people they care about. They know where to push the buttons. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much. You know, you've given us so much time and attention to this. And you're really just, I'm sure anybody listening to this is looking at it like, I don't know how she got through it, but she did. And she's a heroic person and just a great human being. I, I can't think of another way to put it. Just a great person, a wonderful, incredible mother who never once faltered. So this is wonderful. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you for allowing me to. I'm honored to be able to speak with you and let you speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you. This concludes the final episode with Lisa Walden, a heroic survivor who managed to stay alive under the direst of circumstances. Do yourself a favor. Look up domestic violence warning signs. They can be real lifesavers. Thank you for following the When Dating Hurts podcast. The interest we are seeing far exceeds all expectations we had. As an example... Just two years ago, this podcast had less than 2,000 downloads. Today, we are above 400,000 downloads. You can see why we're excited. The more who listen, the more who better understand domestic violence. We see now that When Dating Hurts has become the platform where dating and domestic abuse survivors can tell their entire stories from those early days when they thought it was love through the horrific nightmarish times of emotional manipulation power and control tactics, and sometimes devastating physical violence. It sneaks up on people. That's how domestic violence traps people. I want to give extra emphatic thanks to the survivors who have come to us and told us in great detail their personal stories of abuse. These generous survivors have afforded us open access into the worst times they have ever endured. Their lives were made miserable by domineering abusers, People who were relentless in the calculated evil they perpetrated specifically to devise invisible prisons around those they told they loved. These stories, although challenging to listen to, are made bearable because we know that each of the survivors will eventually transition from a victim to a survivor. We see the sheer determination and immense courage it sometimes takes for a person to regain freedom. It's important to know that victims can always get help, victims can always get out, and victims can become survivors. Okay, just a quick reminder, the When Dating Hurts book is available on Amazon. It's in paperback and ebook and audiobook forms. If you're a survivor and you have a story we need to hear, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Thank you for listening.